Evening and welcome. My name is John Kwelani. We are in the studio with the state president, Mr. F. W. D. Clerk. I won't even read a resume of his uh, impeccable uh, qualifications uh, because if you are in South Africa and you don't know him honestly, you are perhaps uh, living in a wrong uh, place altogether. Thank you very much again, Mr. Declerc, for being with us tonight. Thank you and good evening. It's good to be here. What happened to induce Chief Butlezi to come aboard the electoral process? It is difficult to speak for him. Uh, he took the decision. Firstly, I think what happened is that uh, we didn't give up. I didn't give up. I called him. Other people didn't give up. Professor Ukumu spoke to him. Many people in our country were deeply concerned, and I think we must assume that there was a lot of pressure on him. Secondly, the moment of truth has arrived. When the effort at international mediation failed. The moment of truth dawned. And if he didn't come aboard, the last chance would have gone for five years. Thirdly, I think that the continuing rising tensions and the deaths must have had an impact as, is, as it has had on the whole country, on the whole world. Fact is, there was an effort, there was a last opportunity created, and he decided to accept. It was a good decision, but I'm very critical of him because he took so long to, to, to take that decision. He could have taken it much, much earlier. But the point, Mr. President, is that substantially nothing has changed between yesterday and Skukuza. One could even argue that... Uh, the offer at Skukuza was a lot better than what he ultimately settled for yesterday. So, was he induced, say, by a very senior post in the government of April 28 or not? No, not at all. I made no offers. I offered no inducement from my side, and I'm not aware of any other offers or inducements. You must remember... I've learned that lesson and history learns us that lesson about negotiation. Sometimes the longer you wait, the less you get. If we look to the old Rhodesia, to Zimbabwe, the truth of that is apparent. Mr. Uh, the, the Prime Minister there, Mr. Ian Smith, could have achieved a much better settlement on the Tiger than he got in the end. Mm-hmm. That's Mr. F. W. De Klerk, State President of South Africa, taking your calls on 8830702. Straight to the lines we go. Richard in Fos Luras. Good evening and welcome. Evening, Gentilani. Yes, sir. Evening, State President. I would like to pose this question. Should the National Party win the election? I want to know what action will they be taking to members within their ranks who doesn't want to accept changes and are practicing uh, discrimination? Well, I would firstly like to say we don't have any such members anymore. They left the National Party when the Conservative Party was formed. Surely there are individuals, maybe, who still struggle with racism in their heart. There are many individuals in the ANC 
who have a racist approach towards fellow South Africans. There are people in the PAC who have a racist approach. Racism is a problem, and you can only get it out of the hearts of people by convincing them by reconciliation. But the National Party has already got rid of discrimination. We abolished the discriminatory laws on our statute book. We took the initiative to free the people of South Africa, and therefore the National Party has already freed itself of racism. We've become the most representative non-racial party in South Africa. You must look at our audiences, you must look at our candidates' lists, and you will see that we have become representative of the full South African nation as it is. Thank you, Richard. Let's go to Constantia to Anik. Mr. President, I would like to know why was Mr. Mandela regarded above the law when the police was not allowed to search the Shell House after the massacre? Why didn't the MP, which is still the government, do something about that? Well, thank you very much for that question. It gives me the opportunity to put a, a misconception right. There was at a certain stage a story that I intervened. I issued a press statement then, and I want to repeat it tonight. I was in no way involved in the decision of the police not to execute the warrant, uh, the search warrant. Mr. Mandela approached them directly, and he undertook to make available the weapons for ballistic tests, and it was a police decision, and the government politicians should not interfere in ordinary security decisions. I'm critical of Mr. Mandela's handling of the issue. He has motivated it at length, I think also on a similar program like this. I'm critical of it. He did it. He convinced the police that uh, it would be done, and I think the public needs to know whether those ballistic tests has been carried out as yet. At the moment, however, the uh, Goldstone Commission is looking at the issue, and it can be argued that it is subjudica, and we must await their report. I hope that Judge Goldstone and his commission will also address this question when they report on the issue. Thank you. Are you happy, Annika? Yes, thank you, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good evening. Right, Santin, we go. Line two. Wendy, good evening. Good evening, John. Um, I wish to ask the President um, what he's going to do about the old age people. Um, nobody in their uh, address has said um, what they're going to do for old people. I mean, what are they going to do with health? What are they going to do with health services? I mean, thank God I'm not that old. But they cannot keep on going on, I think it's about 360 rand a month, am I mistaken? Yes, I have the greatest sympathy for our older people who uh, uh, do not have an own pension and who have to rely on social pensions. I agree that the amount being paid at the moment is basically inadequate to make a good life on. We, however, within the framework of the money which the government has without further taxing the children of the older people, without further taxing food and without further increasing VAT, just does not have more money to give. 
we are giving regular increases. We're helping older people in many other ways with discounts on their TV licenses, with discounts when they travel on public transport, in many other ways with health services free of charge. But they are suffering. The real solution is what we are achieving now because of the economic policies which we have followed, and that is to stop inflation so that at least their pension will not be facing ever-rising prices, rising faster than their pensions. We have stopped inflation. We've brought it down to, a, to almost 7%. It will soon be, according to experts, it's well below 10% already. And we are securing the value of our money. That's one way if one look at it a little bit in the longer term. But we have the greatest sympathy. We believe that philosophically, children, the church, the community, also has a duty with regard to people in need. The government is doing its level best with our already too high taxes, however. It is impossible to really find more resources to give meaningful increases. However, there is good news at the end of the tunnel. Uh, as we had a, a, a relatively low increase in salaries, there is an increase due to our pensioners, uh, and we have decided to leave the exact size and the exact date of that to the new government, seeing that we are on the verge of a new government of national unity and almost at the election. That's the State President, Mr. F.W. de Klerk, also leader of the National Party, taking your calls on 702 Talk at 9 with me, John Kualani. Back to the lines we go. Line 4, Sandhurst, Charles. Good evening. Good evening, John. Good evening, Mr. President. Good evening. Um, a threefold question that um, I'd like to pose. Um, why should we vote for the National Party when you people actually started apartheid? That's the first part. And why, why have you, as the National Party, in, in effect, stolen our money through taxes and exchange control and through the pension payouts that you have guaranteed to the civil services? I was asked to be direct. I'm trying to be direct. No problem. Uh, at this stage of the election campaign, nothing can shock me. <laughs> can I uh, start out by saying... The government didn't start apartheid. Apartheid was alive and well at the turn of the century. It was alive and well under all the colonial powers. Apartheid, racial discrimination, is part of the history of this continent. Can I rephrase it slightly and say, why did you legislate? What the National Party did, yes, was to institutionalize racial differentiation its original objective was to make all the people free by building nation states by building a little europe here in south africa as the Fr french have france and as the dutch have holland and the germans germany the ideal was to give zululand to the zulus the Transkei to the Tkosas, and to build so many nation states and to give full political rights to everybody Unfortunately, because of the realities of South Africa, it didn't work. Instead of achieving that, 
it resulted in racial discrimination, it resulted in the dignity of people being impaired, it resulted in the curtailment of the freedom of movement of people, it resulted in something which was just not morally justifiable. And we had the courage to say, this is something which went wrong. And we had the courage to say, we are sorry that that has happened. We want to rectify it. But each and every other party has skeletons in their cupboard. I quite you, agree with that. The Chile, uh, Chilean and so, Nassau's party should have um, come, become aware of this fact um, but when we the did. whole world started discriminating against us through That's, our policies. But we did. That is the wonderful thing. In '86, we changed our policy. We didn't change our policy after Mr. Mandela was released. We changed our policy in 1986 out of our own conviction and we had the courage and the guts to say so publicly and to go back to the white electorate and say we are burying apartheid we are turning away totally from separate development give us a new mandate for one South Africa with one citizenship where everybody will have an equal vote where everybody will without any form of discrimination be equal in the full sense of the word and we won the election, and we won it again in 89. Our hands are now clean. We're sorry about the mistakes of the past, but some other parties carry with them still their baggage of the past. Communism has harmed the interests of billions of people across the world. The ANC is still in alliance with the communists. They haven't broken with that failed and harmful and dangerous ideology. Thank you, Charles. Then uh, on the stolen money through taxes, really, and exchange control, I think that is an unfair comment. Uh, we have promised in 89 to bring taxes down. We've done so, not sufficiently. We haven't achieved our full goals. But individuals, the top tax bracket is down. Companies, the top tax bracket is down. We've kept every promise we made in that regard. We would have liked to have done even better. But we have improved the situation. I cannot believe that I'm listening to the leader of the National Party saying that apartheid was morally unjust because the dignity of blacks was trampled upon, racism was bad, and he is very sorry for apartheid. Whoever said there was no change in this country, you better listen to FWD Clark. Farouk in Berea, good evening. Good evening, John. Good evening, President Declerc. Good evening. Um, my question is on a personal level. 1982, Andrei Strenich breaks away from the Nationalist Party, and you were one of the most likely candidates to move over with him. 1994, you're at the vanguard of changing a racist South Africa to a non-racist South Africa. What was that personal core change that took place in you on your road to Damascus? Could well, you give us some insights? Well, firstly, the newspaper said I was one of the most likely to break away with them. I never considered it for one second. Never. The newspapers liked, up until 1982, to build an image of me as a very conservative person. I have some sympathy for that. It was because I was leader of the National Party in the Transvaal. I was fighting this rightist element. And from 82 to 86 too, 
as leader of the National Party, I had to face the onslaught of the Conservative Party head-on. So my arguments, my speeches focused on this problem of fighting to the right. I never considered going to them. I didn't have a Damascus Road experience where suddenly one morning I woke up and saw the light. The change in me and my colleagues and the National Party was a change which took place over a period. It really picked up momentum in 78 when my predecessor made a, a, a strong speech and said we must adapt or die. It was in that same year that I became a minister. Very early on we formed a committee, I served on it, a cabinet committee, looking at what must we do to reform, what must we do to steer the country away from the dead-end street in which we were moving. This resulted in early changes in bringing the three-chamber parliament into being, in broadening democracy to our brown and Indian fellow South Africans. This resulted in 86 in the government breaking forever with separate development and apartheid. It resulted in the 87 election. It resulted in my speech of the 2nd of February 1990. It was a process of a party doing serious self-examination, seeking the truth, defining the truth for itself, and showing the guts and the courage to then do what was right. To do. So, President, could we then believe that in a few years' time, um, your words, baggage of the past that some of the parties are carrying, and the old adage of the leopard changing its spots, can we believe that, in fact, the leopard will change its spots? Well, it is an oversimplification. You know, if, if, if one could just apply that to religion, if the church were to be so cynical about every sinner who becomes converted, Surely the church would be wrong. If somebody comes to you, your son, for instance, who's done something wrong, and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Do you say, well, will the leopard change his spots? Or will you do what the father in the Bible did to say, welcome to my prodigal son? 8830702 is the number to call. That's President F.W. de Klerk, also leader of the National Party, taking your calls. And up to now, he has been giving very candid answers. Uh, Mr. President, you say you, uh, you, you, you experienced a profound uh, feeling in 78 when uh, your predecessor made his adapt or die statement. If, if, if really that was in 78, then it doesn't explain how down the line in 1986 you cut off subsidies from uh, varsities like Wirtz and University of Cape Town that were actually actively encouraging debate and free political activity on their campuses. That was clearly an equation of... Uh, I remember that debate about the cut-off of subsidies. I'm a bit vague now tonight as to exactly what the details was, but it was surely not because there was stimulating debate. I was never against debate. 
But uh, uh, what they were doing is they were allowing inter alia unlawful activities, which at that stage in terms of the law was unlawful to take place against the law, breaking the law, if I remember correctly. That was the basis, not because they wanted to stimulate debate. No, you threatened to cut subsidies and go back to the quotas of 2% uh, black students or non-white students admitted to campuses that were white. And then, in that context, clearly that was a negation of the adapt-or-die uh, scenario. No, no, but... Uh there were many those were racial quotas mr president yes but there were many technical reasons it impacted on the subsidies it impacted on norms and standards with regard to admission it had a scientific basis and not a racial basis but apartheid didn't die in 1978 it didn't die in 1982 it died in 1986, and then it took some time to die. It took another six years or five years before the final racially discriminatory legislation was removed from the statute book. It was a process. Your candid, frank, brutally honest uh, attitude towards 702, what is it? 702 in particular and independent broadcasting in general there was a, a time when uh, I regarded uh, uh, 702 as part of the enemy press I no longer do so oh, you thought it was part of a communist plot no I wouldn't say that I was never a chap who looked for communists behind every bush but they were quite vicious against us at the stage well ask for a fr for a frank and brutally frank uh, Brutally honest uh, answer, and you get it. That's the state president, Mr. F.W. Declerc, taking your calls on 8830702. Let's go to Springs and say good evening to Ruth. Good evening, John. Good evening, Mr. Declerc. I think one of the biggest, biggest problems facing South Africa is the restructuring of education. I'd like to know how you plan to include the thousands of children, um, particularly <coughs> black children, who are not at school into the present infrastructure and how are you going to do it without totally disrupting the present education system? Thank you very much. It's a very interesting question. Uh, I was Minister of National Education for more or less five years and I'm deeply interested in the problem. During those years we have worked out a basic plan to accommodate all those not in the education system. When the negotiations started, it became apparent that it would be best to also negotiate about that plan. An education forum has now been established. We have put that plan before them. The essential features of the plan is obviously you must build more schools, you must teach more train, uh, uh, train more teachers. The problem, however, is, and even the ANC admits it, we are already spending 20% of our total budget on education. The highest, definitely amongst the highest in the world. We really cannot increase that percentage. So what we must do is to be more effective 
with that percentage of our budget be more effective in spending the money. Part of the solution lies in higher productivity in the sense of having less dropouts, of making sure that students study, of having less disruptions of education, which causes a, a big waste of money, of never ever having a school burned down again in South Africa. Many of them have been burned down. Education was misused for political purposes. That has cost the country in money, but in the lives, in the careers, in the lives of millions of young black South Africans, very, very dearly. Another part of it is to, at an earlier stage, channel children according to their talents and give them uh, applied education. Applied education in the sense those with a flair for the technical side at an earlier stage already direct them in that direction. But we need a minimum period of education. We need to move to full compulsory education as soon as possible. And we need to assure that we do the best that we can with the money. But that requires absolute dedication from teachers, parents, and pupils. And hopefully, this election and the political reconciliation will have the effect that education will no longer be misused as a political battlefield. That's the state president answering your question, Ruth. Yeah, can I just ask very quickly, he said mm -hmm. that we need to train more teachers. Can I ask then why under the Nationalist Party so many qualified teachers have been retrenched over the past few years? We were never against those teachers being accommodated in other departments where there was a shortage. However, uh, for instance, uh, there are many instances where white teachers have been driven out of townships because of the politicization, uh, where they weren't willing to apply for jobs there because they felt unsafe because of the security situation. So. We were always in favor of using whatever talent we have, wherever it was needed. But you can't force a person to work if he or she doesn't want to. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks for your question. We've got to move on. Tony in Krugersdorf. The future government of this country don't accept uh, the fact that uh, uh, the right-wingers has, has to give way to, and uh, uh, we have to do something about that. And if we don't do it, there's going to be the most violence in this country that this country has ever seen. Uh, we're speaking about uh, um, uh, a war in this country. Can I just say, those who want to folk start amongst the whites have lost two elections and two referendums on that basis in which only the whites voted. They've been defeated in the 87 election. They've been defeated in the 89 election. They've been defeated in the 83 referendum, and they've been soundly defeated by a two-thirds majority in the 1992 refer uh, referendum. So we're talking about a minority of a minority, a minority of the whites, who four times with full political rights couldn't sell their policies to the white South Africans. We cannot allow such a minority to dictate the future of this country. They have a policy which cannot work. 
They want a folk start where they are in a minority. They want a folk start which will have the consequence of reintroducing racial discrimination. There's no other way in which it can work. And the reintroduction, any effort at the reintroduction of racial discrimination, apart from the fact that it is wrong, if you really want to see a war, then try to reintroduce racial discrimination into South Africa. They must abide as good Democrats by the will of the majority, also the majority of their own people. That is the right way for them to go. Isn't that the kind of talk, the kind of policy that has earned you the totally unenviable tag, sobriquet of Friar, traitor, particularly among the folk? I don't lie awake about that accusation because I'm acting according to my conscience. And therefore, I'm not a traitor. A traitor is somebody. And maybe each person can apply this definition and test him or herself. A traitor is somebody who knows in his heart of hearts that what he is preaching cannot work and is not true. Could you go then you are a traitor to your conscience. Could, could you go to Fentersdorp and uh, say exactly the same things that you are saying to me now? I, without qualification, that evening in Fentersdorp, advocated the policy of the National Party as it is today. Bromley Richard, good evening. Good evening, John. Good evening, mm -hmm. Mr. President. Good evening. Uh, my question would be, the ANC is expecting a two-thirds majority win in this election. What could possibly happen um, if they do not get a two-thirds majority? And, uh, you know, I'm relating to possible escalation of violence, you know, seeing that they wouldn't be happy with the result. Without in any way uh, bragging, I don't for a moment think that they will come anywhere near two-thirds, and I don't think they believe it themselves. I'm fighting very hard to get them well below 50, and if they get 42, they will have to accept the result. We are fighting a democratic election, which is essentially free and fair, and hopefully will remain so, although the ANC has been found guilty now three times of disrupting National Party meetings, and they've been fined three times for it. But nonetheless, I'm saying that all parties will have to accept it. I don't think that there is any real risk uh, in them not accepting a free and fair election result. Their leaders have bound themselves to it, and uh, while we are political opponents, I don't challenge Mr. Mandela's bona fides in this regard. I fully accept it.